Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very, very much for joining us today. I just got off the Skype phone with Mingwei Song to talk about his new book, Young China, National Rejuvenation and the Bildungsroman, 1900-1959. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2016, and it is such a rich and such an interesting book. So what the book does is take us through the kind of emergence, transformation, and symbolic meanings of youth in the context of Chinese literature and its engagement with social and political transformation and individual transformation in the first half of the 20th century. Now, what it does is it takes us through particular works that embody these concerns and these transformations. And these works include novels of various sorts, some you will have heard of, some you will not have heard of, um, and in the course of our conversation, you'll hear us talking in broad terms about them. But if you go and look at the pages of the book, you'll find all kinds of detail, really, really interesting and gripping detail about the protagonists, the heroines, the heroes, the other characters in these books um, and in these short stories and the way that they are transforming, um, the way those transformations speak to and speak from concerns with youth old and new youth, rejuvenation, and how those transformations and this historical transformation in conceptions of youth that Mingwei is bringing us to speak to not just how we can, should, might understand youth as a concept more generally, but also how we might as readers understand ourselves as youths, regardless of how old we are, regardless of how we self-identify um, in, in terms of chronological age. So it's really fascinating. By the end of it, you'll hear us getting to Chinese science fiction. So definitely stay tuned for that. Um, it's one of uh, my favorite stories of the whole book is the epilogue story that we talk about um, of this kind of micro world. Um, and you'll, you'll hear that in the hour to come. So in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for your support of the channel. And I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Mingwei Song about his new book, Young China. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Mingwei, and thanks not only for writing an exceptionally rich and beautifully wrought and beautifully written book about a really fascinating topic, but also for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm really looking forward and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kala, for inviting me to the to, to the program. Of course. So Mingwei, let's start as is traditional for the channel with the first question. How did you come to work on China and to work on modern Chinese literature specifically as your field of academic inquiry? Uh, when, when I looked back my, at my career development, uh, when I was in college, I was actually more interested in Western literature, and I did some work in comparative literature. Uh, but what really got me into the study in modern Chinese literature uh, was a project that I was commissioned to do uh, when I was a senior in college. That was to, to actually pretty uh, big project for me at that time. That was to write a book about Eileen Chang. Uh, that was 1994, uh, one year be- before he pa- uh, she passed away. Um, uh, at that time, I was just one of the many admirers of her, her talent, her work. Um, I was chosen uh, uh, by... Uh, by a Taiwan publisher uh, to to write the, this book, I was doing that, and uh, uh, when I was halfway through that, we we heard that Eileen Chang passed away. Uh, that eventually 
turned into the first uh, comprehensive uh, study of her her life and work. Um, Written in Chinese, and uh, um, that also changed my uh, my route. Basically, changed my career, the direction of my career development. Um, even eventually, led me to to be more and more interested in modern Chinese literature. Mm-hmm. Great. So, the book that we are talking about today, in the words of the book, aims to investigate the discursive construction of youth's symbolic meanings, and also to explore how those meanings underlie the novelistic narrative of modern Chinese youth's personal development. So this is a book about modern modern China, about the modern Chinese novel, about youth in its various instantiations, and we're going to explore those different resonances and meanings in the hour to come. But first, how did you come to this particular project. What brought you to this focus um, for your research on this project? Um, the first, uh, I would say the first idea for for something like this, at that time I was not expecting to write a book. I was just writing an article uh, that was 1999. I was still in China, uh, in Shanghai, uh, 19, around 1997 to 1999, uh, 2000. That was the, the, the time when uh, a new generation of Chinese writers who usually recognized the writers born in the 1970s, uh, to whom I belong, actually, um, they begin to make some uh, impact on the literary scene. And uh, people were talking about them. Uh, there were novels, very popular novels, like Shanghai Baby or Mian Mian's Candy. Um, so when I was uh, trying to do some critical reflection on this phenomena, I noticed that uh, growing up uh, or coming of age was really a major theme for these writers. Uh, perhaps for each generation, there was this very important theme about uh, coming of age that I later discovered, actually. Uh, But at that time, I was writing uh, uh, this article, uh, this critical review of uh, uh, some of uh, the representative works of this generation. I found one problem, actually, that was, uh, well, these well, the, these uh, these short stories, these novellas, these novels about uh, growing up, but uh, there is a, a sort of a lack of uh, psychological growth at the center of uh, uh, the narrative. Uh, usually, youth is uh, taken for granted, or the charm of youth or the power of youth is taken for granted without much uh, reflection on uh, how it is uh, characterized, how it is uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, developed. Um, That was really the beginning of the project. Uh, Later, when I came to study in the United States, I uh, sort of broadened my uh, uh, my research area. I began to feel uh, interested in the earlier uh, time periods, uh, the Republican period, and then eventually the Qing. Um, so I sort of moved from the very contemporary toward uh, earlier, toward the, the, uh, the, the transition uh, from tradition to uh, modernity, and I uh, begin to uh, sort of trace the uh, the genealogy of uh, the youth discourse. So that uh, one uh, question about uh, my uh, sort of the writings of my own generation eventually brought me to several generations to the situation several generations ago uh, to the uh, to the generation of Liang Qichao who first conceived the idea of young China to to make use a powerful troop in his advoca- adv- advocacy for a young young China project for uh, for, for for the sort of a modern uh, reform so mm-hmm. 
So that was uh, the background and how I came to this uh, this topic. And uh, uh, when I was uh, studying at Columbia University, I was under uh, the guidance of Professor David Wang. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was also taking classes in some uh, Western uh, literature subjects and uh, eventually I found the Bildungsroman this uh, German idea for uh, it's uh, I, I knew that before but in in, in America studied more of uh, this idea I found it's very uh, helpful uh, concept for me to study the narrative about youth or or I'm not taking it as a sort of a, a monolithic idea, but rather or monolithic system, or rather it's uh, it's complicated. It's full of tensions. It's full of uh, um, different views on uh, what what is the building, uh, what is the culture, what is the the, the, the education. And there's also the irony, self-irony uh, in, 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 the, in the system, in the uh, discourse, in the narrative. Um, so I began to work on that to, to do a PhD dissertation. And uh, the PhD dissertation mainly covered the, the, the studies in the novel. Um, so that's how I begin. Yeah. Great. So when you changed, uh, when you sat down um, or stood up or whatever position you were in when you did this, but when you decided to change the dissertation into a book, um, so you, you've already said a little bit about the focus of the dissertation. Were there any other notable aspects of that transformative process, turning the dissertation into the book, that were notable, um, any major transformations in how you were thinking about and conceptualizing the project for from one form to the other. Mm-hmm. The the dissertation is more about the buildings roman, the um, this form of narrative, and uh, it's it's more based on close reading. It's more based on the analysis for the literary works. Uh, when I was begin beginning to turn the dissertation into a book project, I was uh, thinking of a. Uh, situating or contextualizing uh, this literary image in the larger culture history, uh, in the background of a larger history, uh, uh, historical background about uh, how the youth discourse was initiated, was developed, was uh, uh, sometimes uh, combined with other things. Uh, So this investigation uh, went a little bit toward historical aspect and uh, the terminology and the, the, um, the, the investigation of the discourse. Uh, so uh, very much the earlier chapters were completely rewritten when I was revising uh, the dissertation and was uh, re, uh, sort of uh, reorienting my, uh, my, my research. Great. So let's get right into it. Let's get right into the book. Mm-hmm. So the first chapter lays a foundation for the rest of the book by introducing the youth discourse of modern China and the Bildungsroman, as you've just been talking about in the Chinese context. Now, this chapter asks a crucial and deceptively simple question. What does mm-hmm. it mean to be young? When we say young or youth, what do we actually mean? And you remind us here in this chapter that youth is a discursive construction, and it always involves not just construction, but some sort of reconstruction or deconstruction, right? And this is, I think, really important to keep in mind. Now, you bring us into the discursive construction of youth in the Chinese context by introducing the symbolic ideal of the green spring, Okay, so this is probably a good place to start. What do we need to know to understand what you think is most important about this discursive construction of the green spring um, as we move forward from this to the other parts of the book? 
Thank you. Uh, I think the most important change uh, for the youth discovery, because I, I, I want to emphasize that youth or in the Chinese, 青年 or 青春 or 少年, it's, uh, it's not a completely new term. It has some uh, archaic uh, implications in classical Chinese literature, but it actually it was always uh, changing in the uh, literary uh, tradition of uh, pre-modern China. Uh, but toward the late Qing, when... Uh, when 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 the generation of Liang Qichao began to uh, to invention a new China, they used the term "少年" uh, uh, or "youth" to invention something radically different that is radically different from the tradition. So that is when this image of youth uh, begin to have a. a a greater meaning than uh, originally uh, phrased in classical Chinese literature. Uh, it began to be combined with a very strong political idealism uh, about uh, the change. Uh, this sort of a change means the change that is established toward building a different future. So uh, the the idea about uh, youth is uh, is something uh, in the uh, biological development uh, uh, of uh, a person's life is no longer uh, there. Uh, what Liang Qichao and uh, and uh, later Chen Zhuxiu did was to emphasize the meaning of youth to such an extent that youth can be uh, sort of like uh, standing on its own. The youth does not need to grow up uh, or grow into a mature person. Youth itself is the, is the end. So, um, so that is a, a central idea about uh, the, the, what I mean by modern form. But that said, I... Uh, in, in this chapter, what I did is actually to 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 look at uh, the claims, but also to look at the, you know the claims of the, these uh, cultural reformers. But also look at uh, their background, their um, uh, more like. Uh, uh, what they, they, they wrote, what they wrote over a long uh, range of time. I I, I realize that. Uh, uh, youth is not uh, that new. And uh, for example, for Liang Qichao, this idea of a Shaonian Zhongguo is also built upon the strength of uh, tradition. So, uh, uh, so uh, for, for, for him, he, he often used uh, some traditional trope to, to, to emphasize the Dynamics of youth, and uh, uh, in Liang Qichao's cultural project, he's not just talking about uh, uh, the reform. He also wants to keep uh, the the Confucian tradition alive. So there's a sense of rejuvenation uh, that is to make the tradition uh, rejuvenated. So it's it's not about uh, completely. Uh, Towards the future, but also about uh, how to make the past uh, really lively, uh, really uh, a part of the ongoing uh, project to, in the present. So that made the, the this Chinese discourse on youth uh, very interesting because at that time, in the nineteenth century, in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, youth. Is a worldwide phenomenon. It's everywhere people were talking about uh, young Italy uh, that actually inspired Liang Qichao uh, through uh, the Japanese translation, but also the uh, young Poland, this young America. Everywhere is, a, is sort of like a uh, young nation movement. Uh, but uh, but for many of those uh, uh, national nationalist projects uh, youth is is about uh, something really 
that is really new about to, to establish a new identity. But for Liang Qichao, it's, it's not that simple. He, he actually he wanted to 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 rejuvenate uh, the old Chinese idea of uh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is actually great because it also really nicely leads us into what's happening in the next chapter, which is very much related to this idea of um, rejuvenation and national rejuvenation or other sorts of rejuvenation. That's uh, not just a matter of embracing the new, but also revitalizing the old. And in the next chapter, you introduce the figure of the old youth. So chapter two looks at the late Qing trend that attempted to, in the words of the book, rewrite the archaic tradition into modernity. So this very much speaks to what you were just saying. And you focus Mm -hmm. in, in particular, on Wu Jianren's The New Story of the Stone. Now you talk here about the way that um, Wu Jianren uses the figure of the old youth as a symbol of late Qing negotiations between tradition and modernity. So can you tell us a little bit about that briefly? What do you think is most important as a takeaway for us Mm -hmm. about this figure of the old youth there? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Old youth, um, this idea, I I actually, um, I, uh, I, Borrowed from the uh, Wu Jianren's novel, uh, the new story of the stone, this idea of the of the old youth. Um, but I also saw some complications, some irony in this. So there are also meanings that are not completely uh, found in this novel, uh, but I rather I uh, explained uh, in the context of uh, uh, the youth movement in the late Qing and in 20th century China. I actually this image old youth or Lao Shao Nian, uh, he's a is a character in this novel, the new story of the stone. He's the tour guide for uh, uh, for Jia Baoyu, uh, who was who was also uh, revived. Who he he was uh, rejuvenated. Uh, through uh, so, some sort of a time traveling into the future, uh, in, first into the present, then into the future. And uh, uh, old youth is the person he, he, he met when he traveled to the future land. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and uh, this old youth, um, he appeared to be, actually in, in, in novel, he's, he's not youth. He's just called himself old youth, but he's uh, more like a middle-aged uh, man uh, but when he revealed his age that was uh, quite astonishing he was already uh, I forgot 100 uh, something you know really more than 100 years old but uh, his uh, appearance was not was not that old he was very uh, energetic he was uh, uh, Learning all all sorts of the new things, and he passed those new ideas and new new things to Jia Baoyu. And uh, through uh, Lao Shaolin's introduction, Jia Baoyu also met uh, uh, some other characters in the in the novel. And it turns out that this in, in this future civilized realm of this Wenming Jingjie, uh, there's uh, there are. There are quite a lot of the old people who uh, remain to be uh, energetic, or at least they do not look like uh, uh, old people. So this this idea is uh, is very much rooted in uh, Wu Jianren as well as Liang Qichao and many of their contemporaries' idea about uh, the revitalization of a tradition. So the tradition won't uh, simply uh, grow old when the uh, when the when it's already like modern time when uh, it receives a lot of criticism, but rather they invention the tradition to be uh, fully re-energized, sort of uh, revitalized, re um, rejuvenated, so they could. Uh, um, Build a more concrete uh, identity for the nation uh, on the national rejuvenation. This idea for national rejuvenation. So 
<laughs> that's the uh, that's the, the the meaning I think uh, uh, very much to be found in, in in the novel. But also pay attention to this uh, this of course very important figure Jia Baoyu. Uh, he's um, he himself is another sort of old youth uh, because he's also from the past. He's a, he's, he traveled to the, uh, to, the, to the future world, but uh, he himself actually carries over to their, uh, this familiar image of the, uh, his character from traditional Chinese literature. But... Uh, it's also a very important aspect about Jia Baoyu in his travels in the future world because he cannot really uh, participate in the work uh, in the future. He's a, he's a sort of alienated. He's a, he's he's outsider uh, in the progress in the progress of history. So he feels. Uh, it's kind of a, he's denied the 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 entrance into uh, denied the entrance to the uh, to the construction of uh, this future. So for him, youth is a is is rather a burden. Youth is rather a part of his identity that he cannot uh, he cannot overcome. So. He's not like the other characters who are, who are, so sort of called old youth, but they are really appear to be old. They are, they are, they already, they are already part of the history. But Jia Baoyu is a, is more like youth, but his his youth is a is a sort of a, uh, like a waste unto its own. Uh, it's not part of the. Uh, the uh, the, the the working uh, toward uh, making use the energy or the manpower uh, toward uh, historical progress. So 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 in in this case, there's quite a uh, some kind of a, like a self irony here about uh, the uh, displacement, about uh, the misidentity. Uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of the use part in the old use. So, so here's a, basically some sort of a dilemma I found in the image of the old use. Uh, on the one hand, um, it, 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 this, this idea sort of uh, serves to bridge tradition and uh, modernity. Uh, it presents sort of like a very smooth combination of the two parts. But on the other hand, there's a, there's really a gap there uh, showing uh, that uh, the uh, youth can be uh, something you know left out in in the in in, in this uh, his, historical movement from tradition toward modernity. Thank you so much. So, so that is the focus of much of the chapter, but then the late part of the chapter, and I'll just mention this for listeners um, before we move on so they know kind of what to find here. The late part of the chapter also considers the way that social changes reshaped the experiences of Chinese youth from the late Qing to the early Republic and looks at how these are connected to components of this Chinese Bildungsroman that we um, were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. So young people are receiving a new style education. The Chinese educational system is being modernized. Modern student movements are emerging. Um, and you, you mentioned here that there's a rise of sentimental literature that went hand in hand with revolution. Mm-hmm. So we won't have time, unfortunately, to talk in, in substance about that because you know, but there are five more chapters and an epilogue that I want to make sure that we, we touch on. Um, mm-hmm. But that's there. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, Thank no, you. of course. Yeah. So as we move from there to chapter three, chapter three is going to look at the cultural representation of the ideal of enlightenment. So enlightenment is going to be a key term here. By looking at the youth discourse constructed by Chen Duxiu's New Youth, which began to be influential around the middle of the 1910s. Now, this is the leading youth magazine of the May 4th period. And you look here at the ways that the magazine and the new culture movement helped create a new identity for Chinese youths, right? New youth. Mm 
Now, what I want to ask you to talk just uh, very briefly about is another kind of case study that you mentioned in this context, right? Just kind of mm-hmm. given the time we have, um, you talk about the Chinese Bildungsroman in this context as it's exemplified in a work called Ni Huanzhi, right? Yashan uh, Tao's mm-hmm. Ni Huanzhi. Now, this mm-hmm. was the first major Chinese novel to foreground what you call the formative experiences of modern youth, and it comes mm-hmm. up all over the book. So I think it's important for us to have even a brief sense of the importance of this work. So for listeners who have never heard of this, can you talk very briefly about sort of what do we need to understand about this work and the importance of this work to understand um, the work that it's doing here in this chapter? What's the big deal, basically, about uh-huh. this work as a building's roman? Ni uh, Huanzhi is, uh, uh, when, it's com- when it was composed, it was named a novel of education. It was serialized in educational journal uh, or ed- educational magazine. Uh, so it was uh, consciously written as a novel of education. And it's about uh, the cultivation of uh, a new youth character. Uh, it's the first of a uh, uh, is kind of in the form of a long novel uh, in terms of Western narrative. So, uh, so I think the importance of this novel is really that it uh, is uh, groundbreaking. It's uh, the, the 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 novel that that first established some of the major uh, formats for the for the form of the Chinese buildings Roma. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. And you talk about here um, the way the novel also embodies certain tensions. And this is really important, right? The tension between mm-hmm. love and education, the tension um, for one character between being a lover and being a wife. Um, there's all kinds mm-hmm. of ways in which these um, there are tensions and frustrations that emerge through this Bildungsroman that really help us understand also mm-hmm. um, not just this moment, but how uh, the discursive figure of youth changes um, as we move forward into the story. And as we move forward, we move from this into a a very different set of novels by a very different author. So chapter four takes us into a turn, um, or what you call a turn left in modern Chinese Mm -hmm. literature, in the midst of the changing political climate of the 1920s. So in this climate, this enlightened, um, I mentioned the the importance of the the figure of enlightenment, this enlightened new youth that we talked Mm -hmm. about briefly in the context of Ni Huanzhi was replaced by a revolutionary youth as a central literary figure of the period. And we see this by looking at the early novels of Mao Dun. Okay, so briefly put for us, what are some of, uh, for you, the most important ways that these novels, and you talk about the Eclipse trilogy, and you talk about the unfinished novel Rainbow, what are some of the important ways that what's happening in these novels is differing from what was happening in Ni Huanzhi, and in some way that's important for understanding what you're arguing here? Mm-hmm. Um, in Ni actually, I, I, I wrote about uh, how Maldon re- received Ni Huanzhi mm-hmm. and how he uh, criticized Ni Huanzhi because he, he found in Ni Huanzhi some sort of a subjectivism uh, that he he didn't think uh, is uh, um, is in the line of uh, the, the the turn uh, towards the left that happened in the uh, in the nineteen twenties. Um, so for for Mao Dun, I think the the project is more ambitious than uh, Ni Huanzhi. Ni Huanzhi mainly focuses on one individual character's uh, self development through. Uh, through education, love, and uh, uh, revolution, but for modern, he does he just uh, did not just only want to write about uh, individual use. He also wanted to um, sort of a, uh, put the individual characters' development in the larger context of the historical movement. He. He, he really combines the individual youth story uh, with the story of the nation. 
uh, or he tried to do that. So uh, I think that is one important uh, step uh, toward uh, establishing this what I call the Chinese Buildings Roman that uh, represents the nation story through individual story. But there are problems, there are gaps, there are uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, ironies in that. Uh, in, 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 in the cases of uh, uh, the Eclipse Trilogy and Rainbow, um, modern project never could be uh, completed. There, there are uh, simply the sensations, there are uh, the the feelings that cannot fit well into the project. So, so, so I think Martin is really a very interesting writer. Uh, in, in 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 his early novels, we already saw the uh, really the rich uh, implications about how 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 the uh, youth image can be uh, depicted uh, in this way and that way, and uh, the uh, sometimes the, the the conflicts within the narrative uh, led to uh, see uh, Rimbo's, uh situation of being uh, abandoned, uh, couldn't move on, or into this. Uh, uh, Sort of a, a sabotage of a modern's original original plan to make the three parts of a, the Eclipse trilogy a linear uh, progress, but it's a it cannot really be a linear project. Uh, it's a it's a sort of a, a cut in uh, different uh, uh, directions. So uh, there's this ideal. Uh, project for the Buildings Roman, but there are also this uh, 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 really concrete writing uh, projects that cannot uh, fulfill this ideal uh, project of the of, of this novel. Yeah, and there's really cool stuff happening around issues of gender um, in this work. And so, in addition to this really cool moment that you bring us into in the Eclipse trilogy, where you're talking about Mao Dun's um, use and invocation of the myth of goddesses of Northern Europe, right, used to kind of historicize mm-hmm. time. And this becomes bound up in his own personal relationship with this woman. And she becomes, you know, a way to think about this goddess figure. I mean, it's just really, really beautiful and fabulous. But what I want to also ask you about is what's mm. happening in Rainbow. Now, um, you talk a lot about the narrative of Rainbow, the layout of Rainbow, but in particular, you describe Rainbow as a gendered revolutionary building. Mm-hmm. So that seems really important. And what's happening with um, figures of women here is really cool. So in what way, briefly put, is is Rainbow a gendered revolutionary building Roman? And why is that important? It's a... Uh, Aside from being really cool. That it is really cool. Thing. Thank you. I, I think the, the very interesting thing is that modern uses gender as a trope here to uh, represent what is being written into it, what is to be disciplined, uh, what is to be corrected. So uh, uh, the the protagonist of the rainbow, uh, Miss May, uh, she's depicted as a as a as a woman character who is very much aware of uh, her gender, but in the in the in the process of a personal development, modern tries to to make her constantly uh, resistant to the idea of uh, uh, being a woman. So, so the, the the feminine uh, the femininity is uh, constantly being surprised in order to meet the demands of uh, uh, of this revolutionary education or apprenticeship. So uh, that is something that is like gender is here put into uh, a sort of like a, made into like a contested idea uh, where the, 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 uh, the mandate of the revolution uh, conflicts with the uh, femininity, conflicts with the, 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 the role of the gender or the self-conscious of the gender. Um, Martin actually, he's a, uh, he, he's a naturalist. They claim to be a naturalist and also um, in some sense a realist. Uh, so he, he, 
and by by all means, he's he's a better writer. I think he 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 cannot give up a lot of the details about uh, the character. So eventually, what emerged is this conflict between the the gender awareness and the revolutionary mandate. So that is not. Uh, uh, to be easily solved. Uh, it's unlike what, if I can jump to a later chapter, what yeah. happens in the Song of Youth, mm-hmm. uh, the Qingchun Zhigu, uh, that was written much later in the 1950s, in which gender uh, is rendered as a, almost like a, uh, uh, something that the, the male uh, Revolutionaries constantly re- wrote something into, uh, and Lin Daojing is, you know, that's sort of a, uh, really like a being disciplined, uh, that sort of, uh, uh, writing. But uh, in, in, in Martin's early novels, the situation is quite wild. It's, it's beyond control. So that, that laid bare a lot of the tensions there in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I, I love this part of the book. And for um, for listeners, the Song of Youth that you were mentioning, um, this is in Chapter Seven, and this is a work that um, is described here in this in this part of the book as a socialist bildungsroman promoting mm-hmm. correct modes of yeah. self fashioning and ideological thinking. And it happens to be um, what you call the most influential bildungsroman in the early PRC. So listeners who are mm-hmm. particularly interested in that contrast can go to Chapter Seven and find that. Now, as we move forward, um, before we get there in the narrative, we first come to uh, Bajin, the work of Bajin. Now, this is really fascinating. This uh, Also, this is in Chapter 5. Now, Bajin was an anarchist revolutionary, um, as you tell us here, before he became a novelist, and this is uh, well-known. His pen name came from, uh, Bajin actually comes from renderings mm. of Bakunin and Kropotkin, right? Yeah. Um, and you take us here into his early anarchistic novels. You talk about destruction, for example, um, which is sort of stimulated in part by the death of Sacco and Vanzetti, and Vanzetti was one of his mentors, right? And it's kind of a narrative of the life and death of an anarchist revolutionary, and it's really, really interesting. You also bring us into studies of new life, of the love trilogy, and of family. Now, um, mm-hmm. you know, if we had another like three hours, I would want to hear all about <laughs> everything mm-hmm. of it. But given that we don't, I want to just highlight one of the, um, what seems to be a really important point that comes out of your analysis of all of these works. And this is the importance of sacrifice. You mm-hmm. talk here about um, a kind of melodramatic approach in Bajin's novels that, uh, in the words of the book, turns the sacrifice of youth into an aestheticized process of the flowering of life. So can you mm-hmm. talk here about the importance of sacrifice insofar as it's shaping what's happening with youth um, in your analysis of Bajin? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bajin is famous for being a spokesman for uh, the new youth. Uh, his characters uh, like uh, Gao Jiehui uh, is definitely one of the most famous youth characters in modern Chinese literature. Uh, so the flowering, the flowering of life, uh, is another uh, very famous phrase uh, coined by Ba Jin. It represents the most splendid image of a, of a youth. Uh, so it's there's this glory, there's a sublime image of youth in Bajin's writing. Uh, but I want to point out that uh, behind this image, or actually inside this image, there's a, there's a darker side. There's a, uh, a side of, uh, uh, about a sacrifice. And it's, it's the con- total consumption of youth for the revolutionary course. So, this is uh, is like this uh, uh, construct uh, this uh, destruction this uh, uh, total demise of use is the uh, the condition for the constructing uh, for the constructing of a, a more positive of image of use so uh, that is something I feel is a uh, very important aspect of Bajin's discourse and the novelistic depiction of uh, uh, the young. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also this is also based on the sort of moral uh, accord uh, uh, that 
that is underlined by the rivalry between the good and the evil. Uh, so Bajin associated the, the image of youth with the eternal goodness. And uh, it, so it is not in uh, Liang Qichao or earlier uh, uh, advocates of the, of the youth culture who invented this uh, uh, internal conflict between youth and age. It's rather Ba Jing who popularized this. Uh, but uh, in this depiction of uh, uh, the, 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 the battle between good and evil, between uh, youth and uh, age, uh, this uh, actually, uh, this constant uh, uh, depiction of uh, uh, the, the demise of youth, the, the, the sacrifice of youth for the higher uh, uh, end of a revolutionary cause. Mm-hmm. So that is something I wanted to see. Yeah. Great. So once we move from here to chapter six, chapter six actually brings us into the very different journey of Chinese youths after the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out in the summer mm-hmm. of 1937. Now, you tell us here that this was a wartime journey of exile or displacement. While youths of the May 4th period, which um, uh, we turned to a little bit earlier in the book, journeyed to metropolitan centers that were celebrated as spaces of enlightenment. We talked a little bit about enlightenment before. These youths, in contrast, moved in the opposite direction. And the chapter talks about this as a journey to interiority. Now, the chapter looks at two novels in particular that both converge on a theme that the chapter calls the youth's self-fashioning against institutional interventions, and a personal development as a kind of journey to find the inner self. Both of these are products that stand somewhat outside the mainstream of wartime culture. This um, one is a novel called Children of the Rich, and the other is a novel called The Everlasting Song. Now, in the brief time that we have, we won't have time to talk in, in detail about everything that's going here, but if you had to choose what you think is of the most important takeaway here or what you are most excited about that's happening in this chapter, chapter six, what would that be? Uh, the war time uh, is actually a time when the main theme of uh, uh, the resistance, the main theme of patriotism uh, that dominated uh, Chinese literature. But these two novels are sort of uh, very different. Uh, they are Actually, if you look at the, the the history of these two novels or the critical uh, uh, reception of these two novels in Chinese literature, uh, they are they are very much marginalized. They are they have impact on later writers, but sort of they are not uh, they are overlooked. They, they tend to be overlooked because they are they are not part of the uh, uh, movement of uh, uh, the resistance. But I appreciate this sort of uh, difference in these two, two novels, particularly because they uh, showcase the tendency of uh, uh, resisting this main theme about resistance. So the, in, in, in both novels, there's this emphasize on the uh, on the construction of a, a more lyrical uh, subjective inner self uh, that is not to be contained by the external uh, uh, demands of uh, either the nation or the party, or in the case of the everlasting song, the very much like the institution of. Uh, uh, higher education, uh, where lib- liberty is uh, being emphasized, it's like a liberal arts uh, education. But uh, the the novel tries to show even the very liberal uh, atmosphere of uh, of uh, such a college could be uh, sort of uh, like a, a containment for the for the young character. So the, there's this uh, I. Very uh, this self-conscious of the uh, of the young uh, who want to be free of uh, any uh, of these external confinement. So I I think that is particularly valuable uh, in the 
at the time when this epic uh, sort of a theme of uh, uh, the war uh, going on. Mm-hmm. Now, the next chapter actually pulls us forward from this, and thank you for that, into two more novels um, that also uh, are, are written in response to communist discourse on youth and are novels of the early PRC period and that have very different approaches and very different styles. We've mm-hmm. already talked briefly about one of them. This is the Song of Youth and this is the socialist Bildungsroman that we talked about a little bit earlier in contradistinction to one of the earlier novels. But the mm-hmm. other one um, is also really interesting. This is Wang Meng's book, Long Live Youth. Mm-hmm. And you talk about this as a work that challenges Um, the generic definition of the Bildungsroman. You say here it breaks down the idea of a linear narrative, of a step-by-step narrative of personal growth, and instead depicts the the restlessness, the feelings, the ecstatic feelings of the protagonist's life. There's this really interesting stuff happening here with um, the inner life of a girl who, as you put it here, is stirred by her own adolescence and other really interesting Mm. gender stuff happening here. So for you, what's most interesting and important perhaps about this novel, Long Live Youth, and the way it's kind of disrupting what we think of here as the Bildungsroman and its creation of youth? Hmm. Uh, 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 I think the song of youth uh, is uh, really the culmination of uh, the development of the genre. Uh, when when we compare it with the Maldun's Rainbow, we see uh Almost everything uh, is being re- rewritten uh, according to the political correctness here. Uh, so it, it's no wonder the modern praised uh, the Song of Youth as uh, one of his uh, favorite novels coming from 1950s. It's sort of like a, a crash, cor- corruption of, uh, 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 not, not corruption, correction of uh, modern's uh, earlier idea about uh, the uh, development of a young character uh, in the back- background of uh, the national uh, uh, sort of a rejuvenation. Uh, so that uh, creates uh, what we may see as a, like a, a so-called positive image of, uh, uh, of the young. Uh, but uh, Basically, at the same time, I I, I think it's a it's a more important uh, trend that is begin to be formed that is uh, represented by Wang Meng's uh, Long Live Youth. That is to make youth uh, no longer the subject of uh, being uh, cra- uh, uh, corrected or being uh, disciplined or being tamed. It's really about. Uh, the young who take for granted their self-corrective role as a youth. They are the master of the new society. So they, they, they take for granted uh, their power, uh, their dynamism that is that is like a, a forever uh, alive, that is forever energetic. Uh, so that is something uh, I I would not see like a, a subversive, but it indeed uh, is different from what uh, the the youth discourse of uh, of the modern emphasized. It's a it, it's sort of a, a trying to uh, uh, create a. The image of youth that is really uh, the nation. So it's it's like. A, to see Liang Qichao's dream for the young China being, uh, you know, being realized, coming coming true. Um, this, uh, so this, this sort of writing, but uh, but in in this very sense, the Buildings Roman is no longer uh, the narrative form uh, that uh, that is. Uh, uh, that, that that is sort of like the vehicle to to present these ideas. So um, mm-hmm. so there's this this long views is is like the counter uh Roman that eventually uh, uh, showcases the power of use as the cause of the uh, uh, developmental story. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's got a really weird ending where Chairman Mao is is all of a sudden in the picture. Right. There's like really <laughs> right. weird stuff. Yeah. So um, so I, I highly recommend listeners as you work through the book, like pay special attention to what's going on here in chapter seven. <laughs> and like, this is also a chance for me to just mention that, you know, we've been talking in these um, relatively large diachronic terms, but there's so much really detailed and fascinating and sensitive and just really exciting um, detail that brings these stories to life in the book. It's a very rich narrative. And so for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, I just want to make sure um, that that's clear. Like all of these stories have characters and feelings and textures and um, really interesting things that happen. And the one guy's brain opens up and it's it's just really cool and you'll find all of that in these pages and even though we don't have three hours to talk about all of that stuff um this is one of many many cases in which there's like you know in the margins of my book i'm like what i have you know wtf what is mal doing here and so there's a lot of really really interesting detail there too Okay, so speaking of interesting detail, I'm not going to bring us to the conclusion until we have a chance to talk briefly about the epilogue. Um, Now, the epilogue briefly discusses as you put it here, popular youth images in contemporary Chinese literature. And Mm. it brings us into a short story by a Chinese science fiction writer that's becoming more and more popular since um, Mm. at least two of the three books in the trilogy have been published. This is uh, Liu Cixin, Mm -hmm. whose three-body problem has just you know, gone uh, crazy. It's like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. All of us are reading it. It's great. Dark Forest came out in translation. We're all waiting for the third one so we can teach it and read it. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a really exciting Chinese science fiction writer. And you bring us here as a way to conclude the book into not the three-body problem, right? Not um, Dark mm-hmm. Forest, but instead into a story called Micro Era. And you talk about the ways that this story has reappropriated and transformed this dream of Liang Qichao that we began the conversation with. So I think this is a good place to bring us to our conclusion. So Mingwei, what's going on in this story micro era? Why is it important and how does it kind of bring this story to a close for you? Um, actually, this epilogue uh it really uh, sort of brought me back to where I I begin. Uh, it's the uh, it's actually it's the nineteen ninety nine uh, the time when I begin to think about uh, the meaning of youth in contemporary Chinese culture in modern uh, Chinese culture. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's important if uh, if I. Ha- I can write another book. It's perhaps going to cover uh, what happened between uh, Wang Meng's novel and then 1999. Mm-hmm. But that's a, that's very complicated. That's a really uh, some project that right now I do not want to take. Uh, but uh, uh, but to, to 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 think about uh, uh, these ideas, it's uh, it's still very uh, exciting uh, because there's a sort of a contrast with the beginning. Uh, at the beginning, uh, it's like the when the literati, when the reformers uh, created and instituted the image of youth, they invested a lot of values uh, in, in, in this symbolic troupe. Uh, it's, it's like a over invested it's uh, it's used to, to to refer to a lot of things but uh, in in the contemporary in there's this, this so-called youth fiction uh, for the first time this is uh, like the, the the fiction that uh, uh, claims to be about youth I think I actually think Wang's Wan Sui is really uh, the beginning of uh, this trend, although it uh, it stretches really long from the 1950s to the uh, fact that, uh, to the end of the century uh, uh, literary scene. Um, in this new trend, there's a, this. Void this this emptiness uh, that is what I 
uh, I'd like to use Liu Xin's story to uh, highlight, uh, because in this in imaginative work, Liu Xin could envision a world where they're only youth, uh, they're only young people, uh, but they're this this word is like a utopian. This word is like a uh, paradise because the do not have any memory. They do not have any uh, 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 sort of uh, sorrows or sadness. Uh, it's kind of like a, 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 a impossible word uh, to, to think of. But I think uh, just a, a few years later, when uh, this Qingchun Xiaoshu began to pick up momentum, we actually see a we we actually found in a lot of uh, uh, these youth literature, youth fiction, uh, the similar uh, emptiness, the similar uh, kind of uh, uh, vo- uh, void uh, of any meaning, of any uh, symbolic meaning. It's, it's kind of like the youth is no longer part of the uh, uh, the. the this discourse, I don't know, it's, it's sort of like a youth is already liberated from this symbol, symbolism, political symbolism, or it is, uh, uh, it is actually now uh, uh, underlined by consumer, consumerism, by uh, a, a new sort of uh, uh, cultural uh, characterization. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you so much. And, and I think um, you bring us um, by the end of this book and the end of the epilogue to a point that I think underlines what you've just said. Every utopia is at the same time dystopian. And the book um, ends not as the last sentence, but really on the last pages with a question that I'll also leave us with as we move to our conclusion. Who are we? How are we constructed as youth? So I think all of this ultimately kind of comes full circle um, and it asks us to not just think about, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, what is youth? What does it mean to talk about youth? But then by the end of the book, after we've traveled with you through all of these journeys and all of these books and all of these stories, we're able to not just ask that question, but self-reflect and think, you know, not just what is youth, but who are we as youths? So Mingwei, there's so much, right, that we could talk about that we haven't had time for, and we've alluded to some of that along the way. But now that we've come to our conclusion, is there anything in particular that didn't come up, but that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, And perhaps uh, in particular listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. Um, I think it's um, very much uh, uh, what you you, you talked about, uh, uh, you asked is about uh, uh, all the main aspects of the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, of course. So now, Mingwei, now that the book is out, and congratulations, I think um, if it's not Thank obvious, um, it's an extraordinarily rich book, and there's so much here. What's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Uh, I Actually, when I uh, begin to... Uh, uh, when, when, when I was halfway uh, through the uh, uh, the the work on the book project, uh, I found uh, there's a sort of a something uh, very interesting while I was writing. It's, it's actually when I wrote about uh, this youth image, a lot of it has something to do with utopian, uh, with the uh, image of the future. So uh, I, I wrote about uh, uh, the new story of Stone. Uh, the second half of it, it's a utopian uh, fiction uh, or uh, science fiction uh, because it, it does uh, depict uh, various uh, uh, techniques in the future world, and uh, I ended uh, the uh, the book with uh, Liu Cixin's uh, um, science fiction story, uh, Macro uh, Era. Um, so, sort of, uh, you know, up, growing up from this project is my it is my current project on Chinese science fiction. 
into I uh, um, actually I begin to uh, work on this when I write a, a lot about Liu Cixin when I write his novels, his uh, uh, short stories. I felt very excited about uh, this uh, new development of Chinese literature in the popular genre. Uh, so uh, I uh, first wrote about uh, the uh, utopian, dystopian uh, sort of variations and uh, uh, recently, I moved to uh, move on to write about uh, the human uh, post-human uh, variations, and also the, um, the 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 very idea of uh, uh, the future uh, in contemporary Chinese science fiction. So that is um, something I'm doing, and uh, I feel very excited about it. And. Uh, uh, hopefully, I will share with the reader something uh, in the future. Yay! I'm so excited yeah. you're working on that. So we are definitely yeah. talking about that book when that's done too. That's really exciting. Okay. Um, mm. So, but in the meantime, thank you so much, Minghui, for taking time um, away from that and uh, to talk with me about this book. This is also a really exciting book, and I'm really grateful um, to you for taking the time to talk about it. So, thanks very, very much. Thank you, Kara. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>